And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of my favorite episodes of all time was a conversation I had with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor for my Axe Files TV show in 2018. A daughter of the South Bronx, Justice Sotomayor has one of the great and inspiring stories of anyone I know in public life. Here's that conversation. Justice Sotomayor, so good to see you again. Good to be with you. It's always wonderful to see you, David. Uh, I was telling you before that I found your book, your biography, your memoir, absolutely riveting uh, and honest and powerful. And now you've written two more books uh, derivative of it for young people. I want to talk to you about that. Um, I I can't, we're in this room, this conference room at the Supreme Court, surrounded by portraits of the chiefs uh, who have presided uh, over the court. And I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes on the the moment that you think the court is in now. We just came through this. uh, I know you guys are sort of cloister, but you're not cocooned. We we came through this sort of acrimonious uh, process of of confirmation. Uh, How do you view it from the inside? I mean, how does the court and family, community, adjust to those moments? I'm going to steal a a line from one of my colleagues. A story, actually, not a line. And it was... Justice Thomas, who tells me that when he first came to the court, another justice approached him and said, I judge you by what you do here. Welcome. Mm -hmm. And that's what you... And I said, and I repeated that story to Justice Kavanaugh when I first greeted him here. Now, I've known him before, so... Um, uh, I have known him, I've known of his work, but when you're charged with working together for most of the remainder of your life, you have to create a relationship. The nine of us are now a family, and we're a family with each of us our own burdens and our own obligations to others, um, our own families, but this is our work family. And it's just as important as our personal family. We probably spend more time with each other than most justices spend who have spouses with their spouses. Right, as the spouses and probably can attest. They can probably yeah. attest to it. But, but, but beyond the, your, your personal relationships, as, as this moment in, in history, do you have uh, concerns about how people view the court because of the partisanization of everything? It's a concern. Obviously, to the extent that we're citizens, and all of us have a passion about this country and about our constitution and our system of government, Um, that to all of us is critically important. I think many of us feel that what people perceive as partisanship is erroneous. Um, Think about it, David. There are thousands and thousands of cases that come through the federal system every day. 95% of them are 
uh, resolved in the district, on the trial level, on the district court level. Only 5% of those cases are appealed. Now, it's not to suggest that some of the winners aren't um, dissatisfied, they didn't win enough, or that some of the losers feel that the system was fair, but that means that the vast, vast, vast majority of people have gone through our judicial system and accepted its judgment. Only 5% get appeal. Of the Court of Appeals cases, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them, we only hear about 60 to 70 cases in recent years. And anywhere it's been as high as 40 to 70% of the cases are decided almost unanimously. There is certainly a percentage of cases that are not. And we have our, our share of five to four decisions. But is it partisan or is it because, as I believe, we approach judicial decision-making in different ways? Judges are given a toolbox of interpretive tools, and with it we come to our conclusions. If you build a house with one tool, it looks one way. If you pick a different tool, it looks another way. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. And so that the political parties have aligned themselves with certain of our judicial approaches, we can't control. We have no ability to tell them you're sort of mixing apples and oranges. Ours is a way of interpreting the law and looking and building on precedent and on our interpretive principles. Um, and I'm saddened that they are viewed as partisan in that way, um, but I don't think it's a fair judgment of what the court does every day. But surely you know that you're, this court is going to be, probably for the duration of your uh, tenure on the court, uh, a, a conservative court. I don't know what that word means. Um, conservative, liberal, those are political terms. Do I suspect that um, I might be dissenting a bit more? Possibly. <laughs> but I still have two relatively new colleagues, one very new colleague, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. And we've agreed in quite a few cases. We've disagreed in a bunch, at least with uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, with Justice Gorsuch. But, you know, let's see. You, uh, you told uh, a group, I think at your uh, alma mater at Princeton uh, in 2017, that there was a, there was a point in the process uh, of confirmation that you, you questioned whether you wanted to continue because of just some of the things that the ugliness of, of the process. And you said, if this process is going to result in my getting this to the Supreme Court a diminished person, is it worth it? Now, your friends talked you out of that. Uh, for good reason, uh, point of view, but it does speak to the nature of the process. It's a, it is by definition, especially in the modern era, a, a very rough process. It is. It wasn't the process for most of the history of the United States. This public questioning system only started about 1960s, 1970s. Before that, there was a long period of American history where uh, um, candidates, applicants, whatever word you want to use for what we Nominees, are, yeah. nominations, nominees, 
weren't even questioned by the Senate at all. A senator would um, would convey the president's nomination, speak on behalf of the nominee, and then opponents would say their piece and there'd be a vote. That's as simple as the process started out. It's gotten more elaborate with time. Some of it is the product of television. Some of it is the product that um, people are asking nominees for things they can't give. You know, what's important to people is what's important to them in political campaigns. How are you going to vote? But that's something a judge with integrity or someone who wants to be a judge with integrity would never say. You, um, I know you're not going to comment on the specifics of the Kavanaugh hearing, but you know it became a flashpoint for this Me Too movement. And in reading I your, think, David, we're now through with the No, 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 but I want to ask you about something sure. else. Uh, you wrote in your, uh, in your book uh, about the barriers and the kind of uh, difficulties that women faced when, when you were coming up as a young prosecutor and so on, uh, including, you know, elements of, uh, of harassment. Uh, did, did you face that? You mean through the nomination process? No, no, I'm talking about as a young prosecutor oh, or as think, a... I think that you, if, if you read my book... Yes. I don't know that I experienced harassment in the way that people are describing. Did I have moments where um, a supervisor acted in ways that I wish they hadn't? Absolutely. I think um, it's a given, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has spoken about it, that uh, big and small things happen to women all the time. I speak about the moment, I believe, in my book at Princeton with a professor who had been teaching for many, many decades. And I was the only woman in his class. And, every, and he obviously had his lectures prepared for a long time. And when he got to a spot where I'm sure he was going to tell an off-color joke, he would look at me, think about whether he could change the joke to sanitize it. Most of the time, he couldn't. And often he would say, I don't think I should say that, and he'd keep going. Um, those kinds of moments are common enough for most women. Um, the off-color jokes that really shouldn't be told mm -hmm. do happen. The supervisor who says something that makes you feel uncomfortable. The supervisor who asks you or tells you something about their feelings about you, and you have to look at them and say, um, I really think you're a wonderful person, but I don't feel the same way. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, do you do you think that's healthy that the, the this 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 Me Too movement? Do you feel like it's a healthy uh, development? There's been some debate, you know, back and forth about it. But reading reading your book and some of the things that you wrote, it, it feels like maybe it's it's overdue in 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 some ways. I always think that conversation is always due. And the fact that we're having a national discussion around and about this issue is always a good thing. And if the conversation stops one person from taking an action that could be questioned, then it's worthwhile, isn't it? And so for me, I don't think there should ever be any topics that are off limits in the sense of a serious, respectful conversation about how, 
what affects people negatively. And to the extent that one accepts that there are women who have been harassed in even more direct ways than I have um, described, I think talking about it is important. You've, uh, you've said that personal experiences affect the facts that judges choose to see. Um, and uh, do all judges, uh, to some degree, run the law through the lens of their own experience? I think most human beings do first. Uh, it's not unusual, because I've sat there and experienced it, where even in the Supreme Court during one case, um, it had to do with the use of cell phones. And a justice said, so what kind of people use two cell phones? Um, it was a drug case, and so the suggestion of the question was, only really drug dealers have two cell phones. Well, I was sitting in my corner of the courtroom whispering to myself, the government lawyer right before you. During my entire confirmation process, every government lawyer walked in with the government cell phone and his or her private cell phone next to it. Um, I have one, too, on mm -hmm. the Supreme Court for the same reason. Yes. You're not supposed to abuse government property, so right. you have two cell phones. Um, and so it was a natural reaction by that justice, and mine was an equally natural reaction in, in responding and telling him that later. Um, but the point is that I think that's why we have nine justices, isn't it? Because we recognize that possibility. And we recognize that in conversation, we can help correct each other's vision. But no, no one has a, a more distinctive story uh, than yours. Uh, and uh, you, you wrote these books. You wrote this biography in 2013. Now you've written these children's books, inclu including this one, Turning Pages, My Life, My Life Story. Why did you decide By the way, to... it's in Spanish, too. I know it is. I know it is. <laughs> Pasando páginas. <laughs> why, did you, uh, why did you decide to, to, uh, to write these books derivative of the original? Well, the, the third book in this trilogy before us is The Beloved World of Sonia Sotomayor, and this is the middle school book. And yes. This is an abridgment of the memoir. Turning Pages is a story about my life, but through the influence of reading in my life. Yes. And of books. Yeah. Um, and so Turning Pages has a slightly different focus than the other two, but all, through, all three books, in essence, have one major purpose, to show people that no matter how difficult your life circumstances, you should never give up hope. Um, and as you may know from having read my book, my life had a lot. Yeah, I want to. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Your your folks uh, came from Puerto Rico. They do. Uh, in fact, I see the little uh, Koki frog. Oh, you there, did a little, that. Little, little homage to Puerto Rico. It most certainly was uh, there. For people uh, who don't know, the Koki is the national symbol of Puerto Rico. When the sun goes down, the Kokis wake up. And that sound, koki, they uh, sing. And it, their song can be heard miles around. And so um, when the illustrator was doing the picture of Puerto Rico, she, of my 
the, the front page picture. She did the plants. And I then wrote to her and said, but Lulu, where's the cookie? <laughs> and she was so happy to put the cookie in. You, uh, your folks came here for a reason. Uh, they came for work. They came for opportunity. For the same reason that uh, migrants from across the United States move from place to place. Um, it's amazing to me how many people in the United States are born in one state but move to another. I can't tell you the number of Bronxites, because I'm from the Bronx. In yes. Yeah. Who I have met in, far, in faraway places as far as Alaska, Hawaii, yeah. Yeah. everywhere um, in this country. It's not just why uh, people move throughout the country, but also why people come from outside Clearly. the country. Uh, one of the things that uh, is reflected in your book, and I want to ask you a little bit more about this in a minute, but is... Um, the experience of um, being an outsider uh, when you went to Princeton, when you went to Yale, when you were interviewed for a, 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 a law firm and so on. Um, and we're in this period where the other is very prevalent in our, in our discourse. Uh, how, how do you take that in, as, not as a justice, but as a citizen? One of the prizes of having written my memoir, which you have there in yes, front of you, yes. is that I had so many people who I have known as friends virtually my entire adult life who shared with me the hardships in their lives that I never, ever knew about. Yeah. There was and is a very dear friend from Yale who I knew had come from the South, but I had absolutely no knowledge of the extreme poverty he had grown up in. Um, in fact, I just assumed he was another one of the privileged people that I had gone to law school with, and he wasn't. I often joked with him because he only wore one thing throughout his third year, three years at Yale, and those were sort of these plaid shirts that were really terribly unattractive. <laughs> but what I learned was that's all he could afford. Mm -hmm. And um, that took my breath away. I think we often forget that even here, among American citizens, there is a lot of inequality of resources and of other types. Um, there are hardships that people live with each day that make their lives very different from whatever others think is the norm. And so that outsider feeling, it's more common than we're willing to admit. It is easy to say, all Americans, we Americans. And I wear that phrase with pride. But it doesn't mean that we experience the same thing. Yeah, And so for me, that is a life lesson that both my life and even my experiences after my books have taught me. The, um, um, the tone of today's discourse uh, is, is, is what I was referring to specifically. Um, does it disturb you? Does it upset you? I'm a citizen. And so I welcome... Um, the reactions of all citizens. 
I'm no different than most. There are things that happen, whether it was the shooting, recent shooting yeah. in the synagogue, or other things of that nature that have occurred that strike my soul, that obviously make me very, very sad. Um, if that's a reflection of the suspicion that with which we are treating each other at times, it's a sad statement. Yeah, I've said uh, uh, publicly, you know, my father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, fled violence against Jews uh, there. He's long gone, but uh, how painful it would be uh, for him to see this kind of uh, violence now. You remember, everyone does, who was alive then, September 11th. Yeah. And one of the most striking moments for me was watching television shortly after the bomb of the airplane mm -hmm. incident, um, listening to a woman from the Midwest who was being interviewed who said, I've been watching how all of the people in New York have been handling this. They're amazing. They're just like me. Yeah. And that moment, they're just like me, stayed in my head and has always stayed there. Yeah. Because she got an opportunity in one of the most tragic moments of American history to understand how we are all alike in fundamental values. We all have families we love. We all care about others. We care about our country. And we care when people are injured. And unfortunately, the current conversation often forgets that. It forgets our commonalities and focuses on superficial differences. Whether those are language or how people look or the same God they pray to, but in different ways, mm -hmm. um, those differences truly are not important. What is important is those human values we share and those human feelings that we share. But I worry that we forget about that too often. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You lived in the South Bronx. I did. Uh, I grew up in New York as well. Uh, the South Bronx, particularly in the time you were growing up, was rough. And you write about how rough it was. Uh, junkies crime. shooting up in the staircase of your building. and uh, For anyone who has a question, there's a famous movie called Fort Apache. Right, and you were the Fort Apache Police District, right? I was, it was blocks away from where I was born. I moved further away uh, when I was three and a half years old. My mother moved us to a housing project. At that time, that was an actual improvement. The tenement we were in shortly after we moved was actually closed down. And so it was in worse, much worse shape than the new housing project we moved into. You, um, uh, there, there was, uh, it was also known, that district was also known uh, for the relationship between police and citizen, and it wasn't always an easy relationship. And I want to ask you about both sides of that equation. You, you uh, wrote in a, in, a, uh, in a 
dissent, something that really struck me having known something about your background, reading the book. For generations, black and brown parents have given their children the talk, instructing them never to run down the street, always to keep your hands where they can be seen. Do not even think about talking back to a stranger, all out of fear of how an officer with a gun will react to them. And I wanted to ask you as I was reading that, did you get the talk? Did your brother get the talk? My brother did. I didn't because at least in our culture at the time, um, or I should say in my community at the time, I wasn't let out without having an adult with me. And whether it was my mother, my grandmother, one of my aunts, one of my male cousins, um, I was always, all of the young girls in my family were escorted. And so it was something you were taught by the deference that everyone showed to um, law enforcement. It was just accepted that this is something you had to do. But my brother, um, my mother moved us from the projects to Co-op City yeah. in the Bronx in order to escape the dangers and the temptations that my mother thought were inherent in the Bronx. And not in the Bronx, but in the projects. Um, and Co-op City um, was not immune from drugs or other negative influences but it wasn't nearly as prevalent as it was in the South Bronx. On this question of police and community, um, you also bring the perspective, you're unique on the court for another reason. You you were a line prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office under Bob Morgenthau, a legendary uh, prosecutor, the law and order uh, TV show, kind of iconic model. Uh, I think that TV show was... uh, uh, the DA in that TV show was modeled a bit after yeah. after Bob Morgenthau. So you really saw at the fundamental level uh, the system. Uh, and, uh, and it just strikes me, having seen both sides of it, how, how do you balance, how do we as a society balance the need for secure communities? Some of the communities that have experienced uh, uh, you know, these difficulties in police, community relations, police shootings, and so on, are also the communities that are crime ravaged. How do you balance these things? One of the first questions I ask kids sometimes when they're talking to me about law enforcement and community relations, I start with one simple question. How many of you have ever visited your police station just to say hello to the policemen there? or police women today now. And I rarely get a hand that raises. Now, I will then ask, I'm assuming some of you may have been there because one of your family members have been in trouble. But have you ever, or a friend, have you ever taken the time to get to know them as people? And the answer too often is no. And the reverse is true, because if you ask in many communities, not all, inner city communities, you ask police officers, have you ever, do you have any friends in that community whose homes you actually visit for a meal? Have you ever spent some time at a family party? And the number of hands that raise are very few, if any. Now, New York City has learned this and has started community policing Mm -hmm. programs 
that really engage police officers in becoming a part of the community. I wish there had been more of that when I was growing up. But I actually do think that we have to spend a lot more time seeing each other as human beings and not objects of our work or objects of our resistance, as the case may be. Um, and I worry that we've created others of each other mm -hmm. instead of understanding both what police are there to do, which is to protect the neighborhood, but also to um, not to instill fear in them either and to understand it when it manifests itself at moments. You were uh, diagnosed when you were eight with juvenile diabetes and um, seven and a half <laughs> and and taught yourself at that very early age to inject yourself with insulin uh, every day and um, you uh, you wrote in your book that one of the reasons you never had children was that you really didn't expect to live beyond the age of 40 and I'm now 64 I was proven wrong thankfully yeah how did that change the way you approach life not in a big way, because the one thing I took out of the lesson of my diabetes and that fear of dying young was that I had an obligation, and that is to squeeze out of life every minute that I could, to make every moment in my life meaningful in some way. I was one of those kids who never considered a gap year, because I didn't think that I could afford to take the time off from living life fully. Mm -hmm. I also, I was, I was a nerd in school, studied very hard, did a lot of after-school activities, stayed up late studying. I worked on Saturday and Sunday, full days, but I partied Friday and Saturday nights. And I still live my life somewhat like that. I work very, very hard. I do a lot of other activities, and I still party with friends. And for me, that message of that fear of dying young taught me how precious life is. We have an obligation, with or without diabetes, to maximize living. Well, there's another reason why you, you may have felt that way is because a year after this or a little more than a year after this, you lost your dad. I did. He, he, he sadly, he battled alcoholism. Uh, and you write about this in heart, heartbreaking um, uh, detail here. But um, how did that impact on you? As Well, it was interesting. More directly than anything, it was uh, the impetus for my mother to uh, motivate me to go to college. Um, her line to me always was, Sonia, you need always to be able to support yourself. You cannot depend on anyone else to support you because things happen. I didn't expect your dad to die. And you can't expect, even if you fall in love and marry, that that person can, can or will be with you your entire life. And so it really was a very direct motivator for my mother to push me towards college. You also wrote, and this is really what the subject of turning pages is, that one of the ways that you 
sought refuge in your, in your grief and trying to sort this out was to start reading and reading voraciously. Can I show you the picture of that sure. in my book? Yeah. Um, this is the picture talking about my dad's death. And um, there's the gloom in my house. Yeah. And my mother was very, very sad for a very long time yeah, about you wrote my about father's that as well. death. This is my little brother. Um, and I needed to escape from home. And I fortuitously found the local library. Yeah, there were and other places you could have escaped God, to. Thankfully, the local library was in a shopping center nearby. And it was on the second floor of a building that housed the Macy's at the time. I told that um, the Macy's is no longer there, and they've built a brand new library, freestanding library in the neighborhood. But back then, um, I had been, I went to that Macy's, I don't remember, I think it was with my mom, around the holidays, she was looking for something, and I saw the library, and I pointed it out to her, and she walked in with me. And um, I asked what it was. The woman came to us and told us you could borrow books, etc. And we, my mom asked how, and she said, get a library card. So if you look at this picture, yeah. Lulu the Illustrator. There's your card in there. Yeah. Exactly. A yeah. card, a facsimile of my card. Yes because it's not the original one. She found a copy of what the original one looked like and then put it we're, in we're, we're not We're not trying fact here, Jess. Yeah, exactly. we, we've got some exactly. parameter, uh, broad parameters. I started to read, and I realized that it was a wonderful way to escape from gloom and a wonderful way to travel the world. There's my book, pages of books. Yeah. And so to me, it became my escape. Reading always has been and continues to be. Yeah, it also, that boat also uh, enabled you to make progress as a student. Your, your mom also insisted she sent you to parochial school in New York. She did. Blessed Sacrament. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and then Car no longer Car Cardinal her. Spellman High School. Um, and you excelled there. Uh, and, uh, but by the way, that was after I found reading. Right. No, that's that's the my first five years or I would say the first four years until my father's death. Um, I was a marginal student in school. And in retrospect, and I know it for a fact because of one thing, which I'll explain in a moment, um, I was having difficulty understanding English. And this is before the day of bilingual education. And I don't think that the teachers fully understood that I wasn't understanding completely. And in fact, it took a very long time for me to understand the different meanings and usages of words that sound the same, there and there, there and yours yes, there, yeah. uh, where and where. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it was because I had been in the hospital when that was taught in second grade. I think it was a combination of both things though. Well, uh, Not one of the really English one of the, one of the really English. great things was that later you you worked with the uh, Puerto Rican Legal Defense and Education Fund, and they fought for the suit that made bilingual education uh, 
possible in uh, in New York. And I wish you, I could take some credit. I was no, on their came, board of directors. Yes. That happened before I joined. No, them. I understand. But, but uh, and and uh, it was it your cousin who became one of the early bilingual she still teachers. Is. Yeah. Well, she became one of the early bilingual education teachers, but she still is. Yeah. And my middle school book is dedicated to her. So you you excelled ultimately excelled in high school, and you got this uh, postcard from Princeton University saying that you had applied there. You had a friend there. You applied, encouraged you. You applied. You got a postcard saying you would likely be accepted, and then something happened that was uh, was really uh, sobering for you. Uh, talk about that. I. Um went to visit the school nurse. I don't know why. I'm not even sure I was visiting her. You said her in the book office, you were walking past it, yeah. Walking past her office. It was in the middle of the school on the first floor. So you had to walk in and out of the front building and pass by her office. And she could look out and see who was walking by. And she called me over and she said, I've heard that you've gotten a likely from Princeton. I said, yes, I did. And she said, well, these two other students who were number one and number two in the school had received only a possible. And she looked at me and she said, why would they receive only a possible and you a likely? And she said it with such disdain, that's the word, with such a look of, you're being treated specially, don't you know why, look? Um, and I didn't immediately understand, but I was incredibly uncomfortable. It was like, why is she asking me this? What is she insinuating? It didn't take me long to realize that a good reason or a main reason was that I was Latina and they weren't. And she was asking me whether I was receiving favoritism that they weren't. It took me a long time to give her the response in my head that I should have given her at yeah. the time, which was, well, I'm the head of a lot of student activity here. I also work Saturday and Sunday to help my mom with her finances. I'm a award-winning debater in my school activities. I do things they don't do. So maybe that's the reason and not the one that you're insinuating. Um, but it took me a long time. Well, and you ran into it answer. again. You know, you, you wrote about it. Uh, I mean, you, you ended up excelling at Princeton and summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. You won the uh, top prize there. Uh, and uh, went to Yale Law School, okay. excelled there as well, and, and got the same kind of questions all circling around this uh, supposition that you were un, somehow undeserving. At Yale, it was at a dinner by a law firm that was uh, interviewing potential student um, job applicants to their firms. And my friend who invited me to the dinner had worked with this firm during the summer, went around the room and described me as a uh, Puerto Rican that had come from the South Bronx and gone to Princeton and ended up at Yale, et cetera, et cetera. 
And after the introductions had finished around the table, the partner who was sitting across from me looked at me, and the first question he asked me was, did you get into Yale only because you're Puerto Rican? And I was stunned. Um, my mind raced, which was, I don't really think so. I'm sure it helped, but I think I have other qualities that they also found important. But you're assuming it is really insulting. Yeah. Um, you, you, at any rate, um, I filed a complaint with Yale. And they were forced to apologize. And they did. And he did personally yeah. as a credit to him. Um, but I think that, that the, the accomplishments that I had gone through at, at Princeton, um, my scores on the law, LSAT, law boards, yeah. the, Lord bo uh, the boards were decent enough mm -hmm. that I think if he had bothered to look at my background, he wouldn't have asked the question. But it's the assumptions we live with. Well, you know, you wrote in your book, and this really stood out to me, there were vultures circling. This, the, the, the feeling that minority students had that there were vultures circling ready to dive when we stumbled, the pressure to succeed was relentless, even if self-imposed, out of fear and insecurity. And, and, and I, I put that in the context of the dissent you wrote uh, in the affirmative action case uh, involving the University of Michigan. And you wrote that race matters because of the slights, the snickers, the slight judgments, the silent judgments that reinforced that most crippling of thoughts, I do not belong here. And, um, and I thought, you weren't, this was not something that you found in a law book. This was what you had lived. It is what I've lived. And as you know, from my own nomination process, there were critics of mine during that process who were writing that I wasn't smart enough, good enough to be on the Supreme Court. I'm sure some of them still feel that way, but I know there are others who have publicly said they were wrong. Um, but I also wonder for how many of them it was also a part of that unspoken assumption that somehow a favoritism was being shown to me and that somehow I didn't measure up to other candidates. Or in general, uh, particularly hearkening back to your academic experiences, that the investment that these universities made in you had not paid off for them in your superior performance. I mean, they made a bet on you and you delivered. Well, I think that's what true affirmative action should be which is to look at the promise of an individual, to see talent that may not have been exposed to the things that you otherwise would expect, and to take a chance. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I was struck by a conversation you and I had. We, we met when you came to the White House to meet with the president uh, and talk about potentially uh, uh, joining the Supreme Court. And we had a conversation before, and I was not, I want to stress there to ask you any questions about law about which I know very little. No, you didn't actually. Yeah, I know. I was under strict instructions anyway. Okay. <laughs> but but my, mine was more to find out sort of who you were and how you might uh, react to the whole process and so on. And I asked you uh, this question. I asked you 
what is it about, is there anything about this process that concerns you, that worries you? And, she, and you said, I, I worry that I won't measure up. And I, I will always remember that conversation because it helped me understand not just you, but in some ways my own boss and what the pressures of being a pathbreaker, the first, someone who is going where no one else has ever gone, uh, places on one. Do you, do you feel uh, an extra burden uh, being in that position? Without question. Um, when you have, as I do, people come up to me and say things like, you show my kids that things in the future, their success can happen. We rely on you to continue showing them that. It's a lot of pressure on It is because the same as your failure also would be their failure. Exactly, exactly. And so, yes. Now, in life, if you paid attention to that, you could paralyze yourself. Yeah. And so you have to know enough to step away from it and understand that you have to live your life doing the best you can and hoping that it measures up. But it requires a lot of effort to try to do the best every single moment. And you wrote very honestly about, uh, at every sort of important juncture in your life, this, this moment of, of fear before, whether, whether it was the first time you took the, your seat as a, a district court judge or uh, all the way up, uh, this moment of, very, I think, very natural uh, concern. Maybe everybody feels it, but... I don't know. Yeah. I do know. I talk about in the book this first day that I took the bench as a district yeah. court judge, and I describe the fact that I resisted doing it for a long time. I was forced into the courtroom by the marshals who wouldn't let me have a conference in my chambers because they thought the um, defendants were um, not, were potential security risk. At any rate, they forced me into the courtroom. <laughs> um, I sat down, my knees were knocking. I was so afraid that everyone in the room could hear them knocking. Um, my knees were knocking again the first day I was in the Supreme Court. Only I knew enough then, the bench is so thick, that maybe people didn't hear it. <laughs> We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You're the only justice who's been... Uh, as I mentioned, a line prosecutor, a district judge, an appellate judge, uh, before you came uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, do you know, in this way, I didn't do my research thoroughly enough. Um, while I was going through the nomination process, I knew that I had been the only district judge among the existing Supreme Court justices, because I had done a little bit of research yes. on them and, and their backgrounds. I didn't know until the president's nomination of me that there's only been three justices in the history of the court who have had all 
the prior two experiences. And well. what does it mean to have been a trial court judge and see the system from that perspective? What, what, how does that help you as a, as, a, as a Supreme Court justice? I think first and foremost, when you're a trial judge, you have the parties in front of you. Now, often at conferences and things of that nature, only the lawyers will appear. But if you have a trial, and especially during criminal proceedings, you always have the defendant there. You can see their families because they're often visiting. Um, in civil cases, the parties actually may not show up all the time, but they do show up at certain points, often in settlement discussions, sometimes in trial prep discussions, so they know what's going on. The lawyers will bring them. But you're always, always aware of how these cases affect them. You learn what's at stake for both sides. You have a very... So it's not theoretical. It's not theoretical, and the impact is visible. When you're on an appellate bench, you're reading a record. You're rarely, if ever, seeing the parties. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, there's a party in the back of the courtroom, but you don't know they're there. Sometimes, even in the Supreme Court, there are parties, and sometimes someone will tell you they were there later. But you really don't actually see the real impact of law on people. And what? so for me, a lot of my opinions will talk about that impact. Yeah. Because no, I it's, it's, it's I palpable. It. it stands out. Well, and I think it's reflected in my writing as a result. Yeah. Now, people confuse being conscious of impact as influencing the decision you make so that you feel sorry for someone or see Well, empathy decision. became a dirty word somehow in your, in your confirmation process. Exactly. I, I, to the extent that I've always defined empathy as can you see from the other side's point of view? Can you understand what they're saying? But it doesn't mean that you're ruling in their favor. There are plenty of cases that I've been involved in where I've ruled against the more sympathetic party because the law didn't support a judgment in their favor. Mm -hmm. But I've never felt it was something wrong in saying, these are sad facts. And this, what has happened to this person is something truly unfortunate, but the law can't give you redress. You know, um, you walk up the steps of this building, this magnificent building, and over the door it says equal justice under law. Um, having experienced everything... By the way, I hope that every citizen, every non-citizen, every member of this nation's community takes the time to come to Washington someday. It's a very important city to visit. Um, it is the center of government. But if they come, I welcome them to come visit the Supreme Court. Do you think those words uh, uh, ring true for every citizen based on do your experience? Do I believe or do I think that every citizen believes that? Regrettably, I suspect there are some who don't. Um, but I tell people all the time, when you come to court and you lose, and remember that in every case there's a winner and there's a loser by definition, that loser rarely feels 
that justice has been done for them. They've lost something. They've lost a right they claimed or thought they had. They've lost a position that they thought was justified. And so... Or their freedom or sometimes or, their lives. Exactly, exactly. The consequences can be more abrupt. But, but even in the simple case, there is not always in the loser a sense that justice has been done. Is there systemic bias? Is there systemic bias? No greater than that which exists in our society inherently. Mm -hmm. Can all of us see beyond our own worlds? You have to work really hard to do that. Um, I asked you, we talked a little bit before about Puerto Rico. I know you're, you still, you, you studied it. You visit often. You, uh, I'm going in January. What, what, what was your reaction? We all were kind of horrified about what happened after uh, Hurricane Maria and the still uh, uh, slow recovery uh, from it. But I got the sense just reading things that you've said that you thought this is an extension of a long history. Well, regrettably, and one of the purposes of my memoir was to introduce people to Puerto Rico. Um, my sense in most situations, and, and people often call me an immigrant, and I look at them and say, wait a minute, yeah. I'm a citizen. Yeah. <laughs> I was born a citizen. I was born in New York City, but putting that aside, as, as, as is born. everybody on that island. Exactly. Yeah. Um, my belief before I, and I think it's still my belief, most Americans think of Puerto Ricans as foreigners in some way, not realizing that we're citizens above all else. And so one of the purposes of my memoir was to introduce them to my island and explain some of its history. I do think that the um, that Maria and its aftermath has left a lot of questions as to whether people truly appreciate how American we are. Um, I remind audiences all the time, Puerto Rican children have given their lives in every American war since World War I. From the moment we became citizens, we've been serving in the U.S. military and giving up our lives. If you go to another territory, Guam, you arrive at their airport and around all of the walls throughout the airport are the men and women of Guam who have given their lives in American conflicts. Mm -hmm. Most, most, if not all, but most, of people who live in territories are devoted to America mm -hmm. and love it as much as any American living on the mainland does. And so it's hurtful to know that it's almost, it's over a year now since those storms and there are still pockets of Puerto Rico that have no light and no running water. The island is still sort of suffering from rolling electrical blackouts. People are still struggling to pull together their homes and to rebuild the life and to rebuild the island. And 
there are still resources being given to many other people that are not being made equally available to people people. on the mainland. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Here. Hey, I can't uh, leave without asking you about the the very, very powerful dissent you delivered in the travel ban case. And you delivered it. You you took an unusual step and you insisted on reading your uh, dissent from the bench. Uh, and it was a very, very powerful dissent. Why did you take that step? I don't do it often. But I do think that in those cases where there are people who um, don't think that their positions have been understood by a majority ruling, I think it's important for there to be a voice of their views, assuming that I can be that voice and in a particular case, that I actually can agree with their claim as I did in that case. But I think that it is important for losers in a court case to know that their position has been heard. It may not win, it didn't, Yes. but at least articulating it so others can think about it. You were very, it was a very pointed and very passionate uh, dissent. And I know how carefully you choose your words. And I'm sure every single word in that dissent was one that you gave a lot of thought to. Why was that particular case so meaningful to you? I think that when we have people who believe and do believe that they've been discriminated against in their treatment, that someone should speak their views and speak it with real feeling and explain it as carefully as I could as being what is at the foundation of this country, that we don't discriminate that we hold precious the commands of our Bill of Rights. And so for me, those issues are very important. So you you talked uh, about the fact that you are a family, you and the justice. Do you socialize together? Sure we do. I see them more than I probably see anybody else in my have life. Have you inveigled them into a poker game? I um, know that you're a big big poker player. I have, at least one of them. Uh-huh. At least one of them. And and what about um, the now the notorious RBG? Oh. What do you think about her becoming a cult figure in her 80s? So well-deserved. <laughs> she's earned it. She spent a lifetime of giving. And that she's getting a little back in love is really well earned. Do you, uh, you, has she invited you for her workouts? No, <laughs> I wouldn't keep up with her. <laughs> and, uh, Do you know that uh, one of your competitors did a workout with her? I did see that, Stephen Colbert, yes. Yeah, exactly, and he didn't keep up with her. Yeah, I know. Well, that's why he's <laughs> going to stick to show business. So uh, you, you are of this place, but you are a New Yorker. Yes. Uh, And uh, you get back there regularly. As often as I humanly can, which isn't as much as I would like. And um, how about your your beloved Yankees? It was disappointing (laughs) this year. 
They had a good season, just not as good as the Red Sox. Well, the Red Sox season was historic. Yeah. It must uh, have hurt to lose particularly to the Red Sox. Yes. And I have a Red Sox friend who called me and said, and it feels particularly good to win it because of beating the Yankees. I'm sure sure it Uh, was. And it's always hard. Yeah. But I went to the only win the Yankees had in Boston. Did you ever think that if you had gone uh, uh, to more games that they would might have been able to? I think so. You do say you. I know you sat in the right field stands in the judges' corner. Aaron Judge, you were I there in did. your Yankee robes. I did, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Do you know something very special about Aaron Judge and I? We share a similar number. His jersey number is 99. I'm the 99th Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. It was meant to be, obviously. He was fated to be. uh, Listen, when all of this is done, Mm -hmm. uh, what would you like people to say about Sonia Sotomayor? (sighs) Is it more about your journey or your jurisprudence or? Well, I hope they'll say something nice about my jurisprudence. Yes, well. I hope they'll say something good about my attempt to be fair to everyone to read every case equal, with equal attention, um, to be fair and impartial. All of us dream about those things if you're a judge. I hope, and I tell kids, and you know I meet with kids all the time. I do. That I will have said something, either in my jurisprudence or in my personal meeting, that will stay with them and influence their life in a positive way. I will live as long as there's someone who carries a memory of me. Because after that, I'm a figure in a book. Yeah. Um, well, let me just say this, uh, Justice Sotomayor. I think you may be immortal. Oh. Uh, if that is the <laughs> test, you will be remembered uh, for as long as people read uh, and as long as people understand history. So I, uh, I'm honored to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.